We are going to be um, setting in some members and some deacons later on in the service, but before we uh, get to that, before we we go there, we want to turn to God's Word and open up our hearts and uh, hear from Him this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Uh, we're going to be continuing, kind of coming to... uh, Coming near, I should say, the uh, conclusion of our series called uh, Church in the Raw, a series that we're looking at kind of the church in her earliest stages, the church in the, in the very beginning, kind of the, the genesis of the church, if you would. Um, we're going to read this morning from, uh, from G- Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Before we do that, though, I don't have it on the screen. I just want you to hear these words. These are written by Paul, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. And I just want this to kind of sink into us this morning, kind of get in our hearing, get in our thoughts. As we look through uh, these passages, as we look through kind of what it is the Lord is speaking to us as a church and as individuals this morning, just kind of want this to be a, 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 a subtle kind of echo and reminder in our hearts. Second Corinthians eleven three says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray, catch this please, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We're, we're, we are really digging into the church and we're, we're digging into what it means to, to be a church. And last week I made the, the, the bold statement of saying that, that not only are these attributes that we're looking at um, important for the church and necessary, but, but I, I pushed you a little bit on it, if you remember, and I, I literally said, and I, and I stand behind what I said, that if, if we do not have these elements in play within our body, we cannot legitimately call ourselves as a church. That these, these are not light and easy and, and, and kind of things that we can kind of pick and choose from as we dig through this. We're, we're looking at and we are diving into the essential elements of what it means for us to be a church. It does not take numbers or a building or, or a 501c3 license or a, or a logo on, that, on the outside of a building or a website, come on somebody, to be a church. But what we're looking at here is required if we're going to claim and call ourselves a church. And so to kind of tension that statement, I, I want to remind us and pull us to the truth and the reality of this simple fact that that the life that we are called to in Christ is not a life of complexity, but rather a life of simplicity. That as we're looking through all this, what I want to have happen is a a sense of, of, of reverence and awe toward what God is doing and calling us to in this setting and as a body. We, we ought to take the body of Christ seriously. As much as I goof off and joke, I'm going to stand up here and say that. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is serious business, right? This, is, this has eternal ramifications. And yet, there can be an improper balance in this worry and fretting and concerning and, and getting ourselves hung up on, well, do we have this and, and do we have that? And, 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 and we can get so intellectual in our approach that we can forget and we can be deceived. And, and in the midst of our desire to be obedient to what the Lord has called us to as a people, we can lose sight of 
the pure and simple devotional life that we are called to in Christ. So this morning, let's turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Speaking of the very first church, it says, and they devoted themselves. So again, life of devotion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning for the power and the authority of your word. God, I thank you that you did not leave us. You have not forsaken us. And one of the ways that you have kept yourself with us is by giving to us your holy word. And we come to it this morning with full assurance that that the words written here are not the opinion of man. They're not good ideas. They're not practical help for ways of living that, that, that are disconnected from you, but rather your word serves as your lamp unto our feet. Your word serves as a, a means by which we can hear from you and receive from you. God, we don't want to learn about you today. We want to we wanna speak to you and be spoken to by you. So we come to you humbly and yet boldly and ask that you would come and speak, that you would breathe life upon your word. God, that you would come. Breathe life upon your word. Give us ears to hear your word. And a heart of obedience and submission to do your word. To be obedient to it. Feet to walk it out. Let us be a church that is known for its obedience to what you call us to do. In Jesus, we glorify, exalt, magnify you above all else. In Jesus' name, everybody said... This morning, as we look through kind of the, uh, the life of the early church, let's define the church real fast. Let's just get that out of the way. What do we talk about when we talk about church? What we mean is that a church is a gathering of those who together experience God's affection and engage God's agenda. We, we really drilled into this, I think, at a fairly deep level last week. We got all the way to eternity. We looked at at the the reality that God and God alone is worthy and capable of receiving worship. That he alone stands unique in all of the cosmos as one who is capable, who has the capacity, if I can put it to you that way, to receive adoration, worship, praise, and honor. When, When those who are unworthy, when those who are incapable of doing that, incapable of doing that, incapable, yeah, I speak English, incapable of doing that, it destroys us, it breaks us. When, when we heap upon humankind worship and adoration that rightfully belongs to God, it weighs too much and it crushes us. But yet we are designed fundamentally by God to be those who 
worship. So part of the responsibility of the church is this, that God is worthy of worship. Okay, two of you got that little pause I gave you there. Let's try it again. We'll edit it out in the podcast so you all sound really, really spiritual. God and God alone is worthy of worship. Okay, so we, we understand that he is worthy of worship. Let me ask you a quick question. How much of the worship and the adoration that exists in existence belongs to God? Is he getting all that he deserves at this moment within the construct of time? No. So therefore, the church worships that we might give him the glory due his name, and we engage in his agenda so that the world might exalt and glorify the Father. That growth and church growth and reaching the lost, if I can push us here a little bit, I think we're mature enough as a church and as believers to hear this, that really, that really reaching the lost at its foundation has little to do with the lost. And has everything to do with the worthiness of the Father. He is worthy of worship. Why is it that I I witness to those who are far from Christ? Why is it that I long for those far away from Jesus to come close to him? Yes, it is for their benefit. I believe that the best life you can have is a life given over to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's fun. And it doesn't mean that it's without its faults. And it's, it's, it's fumbling on our part. Come on, somebody. And that pain is just absent. If you responded to a gospel that said, come forward, pray a prayer, and Jesus will make all your dreams come true, you did not respond to the true biblical gospel. I love you, but you didn't. You should try it again. Jesus did not come for us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And we cheapen the work of the cross when we demand such things. But rather, Christ came and paid the penalty for sinners so that the Father might receive the totality of the worship that is due his name. You following with me here? Picking up on what I'm laying down? So we got to this last week and we we understood this idea of Christ of worship and praise. And we understood that we are called fundamentally to exalt Jesus, not just for what he has done, not just for what he is doing, and not just for what he has promised to do, but come on somebody, we are called to worship him simply because of who he is. His character and nature alone make him worthy of our worship. The fact that he acts from that character on our behalf, come on somebody, only makes us even more in debt to his worship and even more sinful for not giving it to him earlier. So this morning what I want to try to do is take this idea and help us understand that in being reconciled back to the Father, being reconciled, a, may be, a way being made for us to have relationship and communion with God is, is there, catch this please, so that we may have a relationship and communion with God. I say that because of this. I, I fear that when we talk about and, and and look, my job for you is to make God big. Okay, we, we, we around here, people say, like, what's your theological perspective? The way we word it around here, we have big God theology. If I'm going to err in one way or the other when it comes to a theological perspective, personally, I'm going to blame too much on God. It's just the way I roll. I would rather stand before the Father at the end of time and have him go, dude, that was not me at all, and go, dude, my bad, than have to do the other way. Right? Like, yeah, you took credit for that and you shouldn't have. Oops. <laughs> we have big God theology. And yet, in that understanding of 
the magnificence, the glory, the holiness, the splendor, the magnificent character, nature, holiness, power, and majesty of God. He takes his spirit, he puts it within us, and the Bible tells us that spirit, when, when given to us, causes us to cry out to him, Abba, Father. Literally causes us to be adopted and become his sons. Now, I've talked about this before, but we got some new people, so let me make sure we all understand that, because all the feminists in the room are like, I am not a son. Okay? We stick to the Bible around here, and the reality is that scriptures never say he has, in the New Testament, it never says he has made you his daughters. It calls you sons. The reason for that is simple. In the culture of the time, girls did not receive an inheritance. If you were a daughter, no matter how wealthy your father, when he died, you got zip. So the writers of the New Testament and the Spirit of God calls us all sons because all of us, regardless of, uh, of male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, are made sons in him so that we might understand that we have been given an inheritance. So ladies in the room, you are sons of God. If you don't think that's fair, the Bible also says that all of the redeemed make up the bride of Christ. Guarantee you, ladies, it's easier for you to be a, a son than it is for me to be a bride, because that just would not look right. So, so it's equal opportunity of us being offended there. Well, we're sons of God. We're, we're brought near to him. We are made his sons, and we cry out to him as our father. It says here that they devoted themselves to the prayers. Now let's talk about prayer. Prayer, let's just make it as simple as we can, is simply communing, communing with God. Simply having communion with God. It's, it's talking to God. It's, it's, it's speaking to God. It's listening. It's waiting. It's, it's abiding in His presence. It's making requests and petitions. But it's also spending time with Him that our hearts may be altered and changed and, 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 and molded evermore into His image. Now, I was fascinated personally. I don't know if, if you caught it. But, but it says in, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the, the person who loves liturgy in me is just like, oh, did they have a book? And they, they read the prayers? Where is that book? We should get that book. It's probably a good book. But when I looked into the words, like, why did they translate it the prayers? Two reasons, I think. First off, this word for prayer in the Greek is a word that, that means specific types of prayers. Number one, made in specific places. That there was a there was a culture that said we, we we set aside places to go and pray, and the kind of prayer that we do there is a prayer that we pray together. It's it's not just general, vague kind of whatever prayer. This is saying that they there was a devotion, there was a commitment to a way of praying that is is consistently and, and strategically different than what the culture was doing at the time. Let me unpack this a little bit. I believe part of the reason why they were, were, were praying this way is they were following the model that Jesus laid out for his disciples. How many of you know who's it all about? Okay, so who ought we to look to when we want to figure out how to pray? Okay, you guys were all more sure that he was what it was all about than you were that he was the one that we should look to for prayer. So who should we look to when we try to learn about and understand and unpack prayer? Who should we look to? There we go.
So what I want to try to do this morning is look back and take a look at how Jesus prayed. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. So a couple things before we even dive in here. We're going to take some time. We're going to chew through this this morning. Before we even get there, I want to make a few points. We're just going to read this. I'm going to make some observations, and then we're, we're going to move on. Before we even get to the observations of the passage, I want to point out that prayer was so important to Jesus that he took time in the limited time that he had on this planet to teach his disciples how to do it. Now, I, I will confess and be honest with you that prayer is one of those things in the church that when you talk about everyone, amens about it and nobody wants to do it. All you're like not making eye contact. You're like, no, no, no. Like, you, you, can, you can call for just about any kind of meeting in the church and you, you will get butts in the seats. But you say like, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting. And everyone's like, I got to work and stuff. But prayer was so important to Jesus. He took time to teach his disciples how to do it. Prayer was so important to Jesus. Let me just throw all the cards on the table, that he did it himself and he was God. If God himself needed to pray, how much more do you think you and I need to pray? So prayer is important. And Jesus took the time not only to teach his disciples to pray, but to teach them how to pray, which tells me this, and, and please hear me, I, I love you, but there is an attitude in our culture that I want to touch on here for a second and, and hope that there's enough grace in the room that you can hear me. There is a wrong way to pray. I love you. But there, there is this, well, just, you know, just pray. Just, you know, some prayer is better than no prayer. That's not always true. I remember I worked at a, at a church and we had this saying, and, and I, I understood the heart of it and I got it, but we had the saying, our way of doing it is better than our way of not doing it. And that's true until you've been doing it for like three years and you're like, can we figure out how to do this better? Like, we still suck at this. I don't think that's right. There is a wrong way to pray. If there was not, if there was not a proper way to pray, Jesus would not have taken the time to teach his disciples how to pray. And, and also, in conjunction with that, the way the disciples saw Jesus praying was different than the way they saw other people praying. So they were interested in learning how to pray the way he does. So I want to take some time and slowly walk through this and look at what does it mean to pray? How did Jesus teach his disciples, which I hope we all are one of, how did he teach them to pray? So Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 it says and when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others truly i say to you they have received their reward but when you pray go into your room Shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What Jesus is saying here is this. This is not, first off, this is not some empty spirituality. Something real is happening here. Amen? Prayer is not like, I heard one guy says, prayer is exercising your spiritual muscles. I hate exercise. 
I know that's shocking looking at this great physique I have, but I hate to exercise. And you can slap whatever word in front of it you want. I still hate it, okay? Well, no, it's spiritual exercise. Okay, no. There was a time in my life, okay, I have, to, I have to defend myself here for a second. There was a time in my life I loved to exercise. So that time in my life I was working, I lived in Guam. Anybody know where Guam is? That's what I figured. It's an island in the South Pacific. It's, it's a little tiny island. It is America, but only sort of. And um, it's a territory, which means they have taxation without representation, but that's not a big deal. Um, lived in Guam, and, and while I was living in Guam, I got my first job. It was really rough. I worked on a tour boat, like Gilligan. And uh, I worked on this boat, and on this boat, we drove jet skis, we snorkeled, we scuba dived, and we fished for yellowfin tuna for Korean tourists. It was a really rough job. In the early 90s, I got paid over $20 an hour to spend all day on a boat. It was rough. But part of the job in the morning and in the evening was pulling these jet skis out of the water and putting them on the dock. Part of my job was reeling in these gigantically huge sea fish. Part of my job was, was pulling... Korean tourists out of the water when they drowned and, and, and pulling them up. And the worst thing ever is to be 15 years old and weigh like, you know, a buck ten wet with all your clothes on and try to lift a jet ski out of the water while all these huge local island boys stand around you and mock and belittle you. I hated it. So at this point, I realized I should probably work on this. So at that point in my life, I started going to the gym, working out, pulling jet skis up, and got quite in shape. At the same time, I was into the theater because I was a nerd. And uh, I was in, in theater, and I had a part in a play that I had to lift a girl up in front of about 5,000 people and carry her off stage. Again, the worst thing ever is to be like, Whoa, okay, <laughs> which was the way I lifted her the first time. So I got very devoted, come on somebody, to working out. I'll never forget, quit the job on the boat, play ended. I walked into the gym, I looked around, I saw all the really heavy stuff and went, this has no point anymore. <laughs> and I left, and I have stuck to that commitment. If we, only, if we only call prayer spiritual exercise, and it has no point, you're going you're gonna to give up on it. Once the point, once the, the value for me of being in shape was gone, I quit working out. It's not just a spiritual exercise here. Jesus is saying something real is happening here. Don't be like hypocrites who act one way, but in reality you're another. Don't be like them who, who just stand up and publicly pray. Now, I want to tension this. There is a proper way to pray publicly. Gee, I've actually heard people teach, like, it is not biblical to pray in public. Read your Bible. Um, the Bible consistently talks about prayer. The church, come on somebody, was birthed in a prayer meeting. We shouldn't be shocked that prayer makes it into this list in these five verses. The, the Bible literally says earlier, in the, in the earlier portion of chapter 2 in Acts, that they were in an upper room praying. The, the church was birthed in a prayer meeting. There's a proper way to pray publicly. And to put it simply, the proper way to pray publicly, according to Jesus, is to not draw attention to yourself. We all met that person, that friend who like prays really good in public. Oh Lord, that thouest might be here and not there. They rhyme really well. You get goosebumps on the back of your neck. It's all about them. Or you have that friend like being a youth pastor, I got to hear a lot of people pray out loud for the first time. You know how you can tell when somebody prays out loud for the first time? Lord Jesus, Father God, 
We pray, Lord Jesus, Father God, that you would, Lord Jesus, Father God, be with us, Lord Jesus, Father God. I have no idea what to say, Lord Jesus, Father God, so I'm just going to keep saying, Lord Jesus, Father God, 84 times in a row in hopes that no one will notice. Amen. There's a proper way to pray in public. There's an improper way of praying in public. It's not about being a hypocrite. It's about understanding proper time and place. Amen. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't draw attention to yourself. But understand that you are talking to your Father. Now listen to me, I think it's important for us to pray as a church. I think it's valuable for us to devote ourselves together in these kind of contexts to prayer. We've, we're really excited that we've been able to, to, to build a team and we're starting to build the team to, to have people here to pray for you at the end of the service each week. And I would encourage you to, to continue to take advantage of that if you're struggling with things, if you're facing issues and, and problems and circumstances that you want God to intervene on. There's a power that happens when we pray together. Amen? But Jesus here is saying there's a proper way to do it, and that is understanding you're communing, you're speaking to, you're interacting with your Father who is in heaven. It's not about the people around you. Verse 7. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard from their many words. Don't be like them, for your, what? Father. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Prayer is not about convincing or obligating God to work on your behalf. Some of us think, like, yeah, I really, really, really need, want fill in the blank, to be healed. I really need, want to uh, get that new car, that promotion. And we spiritualize it, right? Well, if I, if I got paid more, I could tithe more. I mean, I'm not tithing now, but I mean, I could <laughs> more later. I could be more generous if I just had more money. Well, if God gave me that new Mercedes, I would use it to drive the pastor around. I don't, I don't, I don't give him a ride anywhere now, but whatever. If I had a bigger, shinier house, I wouldn't feel so embarrassed inviting people over. Right? We spiritualize it. We always do. And then we think, okay, this is what I want, so now i got to come up with a really good reason why God should give that to me. And we think that our prayer life should be structured on this. Or, or let's, let's be honest, we, we make it even more spiritual than that. We think that somehow... Our prayer and how we pray will either, will either like God's like up there listening like the IRS, right? And he's making sure we tick all the right boxes. And if we do, then he gives us our refund. But if not, he's like, oh, sorry, you forgot to check the little box. Jesus says, look, it's not about obligating God to respond to you. It's not about praying. Well, if I pray an hour every day, then God will. Well, if I say it this way, God has to respond to that. I heard one guy literally say, he got up in front of a bunch of young people. I, might, I have a bunch of my kids there at this, this uh, retreat, and he got up, he's talking about prayer, and he said, if you pray the Bible, God has to respond because it's his word. It's like a menu at a restaurant. You find what you want, and you tell him. And I'm like, I don't think we met the same Jesus, bro. Because your Jesus is a waiter. Mine has a tattoo on his leg and a sword coming out of his mouth, okay? Like, I don't think we're praying to the same dude, Okay? It's not about obligating him. Listen to me. Your prayers will be effective 
not because, please hear me, not because of the quantity of your words, but because of the quality of your heart. Your heart has been transformed if you have been redeemed into a son of God. God is your father, and Jesus says he loves to respond to you. He loves it. Now we're going to get into the model of prayer in a minute. We're going to understand this more fully. But before we even get there, hear this. If you've been redeemed, if you've been reconciled, part of that reconciliation is you becoming a son of God. Regardless of what your relationship was with your father, our father in heaven is a good and gracious God who loves to show himself able on behalf of his people. The Bible actually says he's searching for people whom he can show himself strong on their behalf. We're not trying to obligate God with our many words. Like, well, if I pray a long time, that's better than if I pray a short time. Can I be honest with you? Sometimes the best prayer you can ever pray is, Help! And that's it. Maybe you can't even get that much out. Let's just get real for a second. Maybe all you can do is lay on the ground, suck rug, and cry before your father because of the weight of what you're going through. And you need to realize that that has power when it comes to the father. So let's dig through this real fast. I want to look at how Jesus tells us to pray. Verse 9, pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pause. The foundation of proper biblical prayer starts with an acknowledgement and an understanding of the supremacy and the holiness of God. If you are coming in prayer for anything else other than him, you're doing it wrong. Well, but I really need, we'll get there. If your heart in coming to the Father is for anything other than for Him and exalting and magnifying Him, it is not in alignment with the purposes, plans, and priorities of God. I love you. If your time with Him is not totally about Him, it is being built on a shaky and unsure foundation. He is why we pray. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is about our desires being conformed to his desires. Prayer is about our life being conformed to his life. Prayer is about falling so desperately, madly, outrageously in love with the Father that we can't wait to get to heaven so much so that we're like, dude, I can't wait to get there, so just bring it here. Let my heart, let my life, let my marriage, let my kids, let my business, let my working environment, let everyone around me live and exist just like they will when we're in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not some vague kind of mushy spiritual babble. It is reality and it is truth. And it is saying, God, I want your will more than my will. And catch this, please, even Jesus who is God prayed that way? Not my will, but your will be done. Notice that this is the next thing. First we acknowledge his holiness. First we acknowledge his character. First we acknowledge him. Next we acknowledge that everything in our life, our desire is to be like him. And if our desire is not that way, we're asking for him to make our desire that way. 
Because within me, come on somebody, I, I, find, I find the desire to do good, but not the ability. So we come and we say, Lord, you come and you have your way. Make my heart the way that your heart is. Make my life the way that your life is. I want earth to be like heaven. I want heaven to invade earth. Why, why, do we, why do we do what we do as a church? So that earth might become more like heaven. And what is heaven like? We've talked about this in the past. Heaven is like Jesus everywhere. Heaven is so completely and utterly focused on Jesus that when they built stuff, they were like, okay, we want to build stuff, but we have to be able to see through it. Because if anything blocks Jesus, we're ripping it down. So heaven, when you see it in Revelation, even the gold, it says, can be seen through. That's not weird spirituality. That's nothing is getting in the way of Jesus. Let my life, let nothing get in the way of Jesus. When I'm at work and I'm doing spreadsheets, let me do it for the glory of God, even though I hate it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on others in heaven. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Let me, let me 180 on you here real fast and follow me. It is right to ask God to provide for your needs. We, we pegged this pretty hard on the holiness, the majesty, the glory, and the will of God, right? And when your heart is there, when that's your heart, when your heart is, I want to exalt the Father, when your heart is, I, I, I want His will to be done, when your heart is, I want His kingdom to come, in that mindset, in that place, it is good and right to say, God, provide for my needs. God, I have needs here, and, and in my flesh, this, this is just, I'm just being honest, this is the way I pray. Crack open my prayer door for you here for a second. This is, this is how this comes out in my life. Lord, all I want is you. But it's really hard to hear your voice when my stomach is growling. But it's really hard to hear you when I know. It's really hard to be devoted to you when I know. It's really hard to be focused on you when I know that I can't pay my rent and it's due yesterday. So God provide for your namesake so that I might stand before the scoffers and say, I have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I can stand before the scoffers and say, I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. It is right and good to ask the Father as our Father, not an entitlement, but because of our title as sons to stand before Him and say, God provide. To open that up. Some of us need to hear that even more because you think it's, it's God's job to be God and it's your job to get all this stuff done. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But it's, your, it's not your job. You can't do it. Look, what you can do, do. But there's nothing wrong when you stand before the Father and say, I, I, I can't. So I give it to you. Verse 12, forgive us our debt as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
my greatest need and your greatest need is forgiveness. Your sin is a bigger deal than you think it is. My sin is a bigger deal than I think it is. Because if the foundation of a devotional life with the Father is magnifying, exalting, and making much of His holiness, and you live contrary to that nature, it's a big deal. And look, around here, we make much of His grace and His forgiveness. That's our focus. Amen? But that grace and that forgiveness would be unnecessary if we were not sinners. Now, to be honest with you, again, I'm trying to share from my devotional life as much as I can without making it a model. Come on, Jesus is the model, amen? Like, I understand my kind of apprehension in this, but at the same time, I want to try to help this be as practical as is appropriate. I was raised in a, in a movement within the body of Christ that taught me this as a seven-year-old. I remember sitting with my Sunday school teacher, and she was talking about prayer and talking about this specifically. She said, you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins every day. And I said, well, what, what if I can't remember them? I'm like six or seven years old, right? Like, I don't remember what color my socks are right now. And I only own white socks. <laughs> she looked at me, and she said, if you aren't willing and able to remember your sins, why should God ever forgive you of them? And I lived under that burden for about the next 10 years where I would literally sit up at night so I went through just to be clear I went through a horrible sinful running from God I was not righteous from the age of 7 once I was back and reconciled to the Father I, I, I still carried that wonderful little nugget of spiritual truth sit up at night and I would cry out to God and say, Lord, please remind me of all the horrible, wretched things I did today so that I might beg of you to forgive me so that I might not be out of communion with you. And I would literally, I'm not exaggerating, I would spend hours at night trying to remember every little sin I committed that day. And I lived under that burden. And I will never forget the night that I am literally weeping on my floor. And I heard as close to audible from the Lord as I've ever heard. It was not audible, but it was as close as I have ever heard to the audible voice of the Lord. When I was crying, I literally said, God, I just want you to forgive me. And here's what he said, I already have. Let me ask you a simple question. When did Jesus die? How many sins had you committed at that point? He paid for your sin before you committed your sin. This idea of forgiveness is not the idea of me coming to him day in and day out and begging for his forgiveness. This word forgiveness is not about pardon. It's about separation. Separate my sin from me. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to just be pardoned. I don't want to just be forgiven. I want to be different. I don't want to do that again. And I'm going to. So when I stand and I kneel and I weep before the Father, my prayer is not pardon me of my sin. It's rip every last bit of sinfulness out of my heart regardless of the pain that it causes me. Because I love my sin or I wouldn't do it. Take the stone out of my chest and replace it with a heart that beats and pounds and runs after you, Jesus. Deliver me from evil. Remove it from me. Let me run to you. I'm going to land right here. 
I don't have time to go here. I was planning on it. Don't have time. Luke, uh, just write this down if you want to. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. I want us to look, you to look at that this week. That's your homework. I promised you practical application. That's your, that's your practical step this week along with what I'm about to dive into. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Um, I promise you we'll look at this next year as we look at our series through the gospel of Luke. So we'll get there. But this is the story of Mary and Martha. If you've hung around the church very long, you know this story. Even if you haven't, it's kind of become a cultural saying. Are you a Martha? Are you a Mary? Martha invites Jesus uh, to come into her house, and she gets all crazy busy trying to prepare for him and make a meal for him and clean her house for him and present everything to him and do all the right things for him. She's bustling around doing good stuff. But Mary, her sister, sits, the Bible says, at the feet of Jesus like a disciple and just listens to him talk. Martha gets like pissed and goes to Jesus like, Jesus, you need to tell her to help me. Just like a sibling, right? I love it when one of my kids comes running into the room like, Dad, she's not helping. Make her help. Just do it. My, my response to my kids, again, just being honest, do you really want me to get involved in this? And usually they rethink their, their approach at that time. Jesus kind of responds like that. He says, look, Mary is chosen the good thing, the only thing that's necessary, and I'm not going to take that from her. There's a necessity to sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's a necessity to prayer. I have three desires for you. These are going to go real quick, I promise. Three desires for you when it comes to your prayer and devotional life. Three quick, simple things. The first thing is that it would be there will be consistency in your devotional life. Now, I don't say that to put pressure on you. I say that to try to relieve pressure on you. Because if you're like me, you've got a 10-pound life, you're trying to cram into a five-pound bag. Jesus told Martha, you're worried about a lot of things, but there's only one thing that's really necessary. And that's what Mary's doing. Look, you might be worried about and filled your life with a lot of things. There's really only one thing you need to be filling your life with, and that's devoting yourself to Jesus. So take the time. Be consistent. That means set a time, pick a place, and make a plan. I know some of you hate this because it's too practical. You want me to leave it in just like the fuzzy-wuzzy, spiritual, foggy, whatever. Yeah, that's great. Set a time, (laughs) pick a place, make a plan. Because if you're like me, you have have had these moments where you're like, you know what? I'm a pastor. I'm going to pray an hour every day. So you get up early in the morning and you kneel beside your bed and you pour out your heart to the Father and you cry out for your family and, and for your wife, for your kids, for your mom, for your dad, for your cousins. You name all your cousins. You, you go through everybody that you know at work. You go through all of your neighbors. You, you think about all their houses and you pray for them and their kids and all of their cousins. And then you, you pray for the city and you pray for all the government officials and you pray, for, you pray for all the businesses. You name all the streets in your city and you pray for your state and all the government officials there and all of the businesses that you know that are in your, your state. And you pray for your region and your country and your world and you crack your eye open in a minute and 37 seconds has gone by. And you're like, she tied my bow tie. Right? Like, you think that's why God gave you tongues, so you can fill out the rest of the hour with just that. Can I relieve, when I say set a time, I'm not saying set a time minimum. I'm saying set aside a time every day to pray. Be consistent. There was a time in my life when it was late at night. I got kids now. That's not going to happen. 
I got to get up before them, which is hard if I want to have that time with the Lord. For me right now, I'm going to be honest with you, because of, of my schedule, my consistent time with the Lord every day is my drive to work every day. I got about a 30-minute commute to work and a 30-minute commute back to work. That's the time I spend just praying. For me, I have to do it out loud so that I don't think about cheese. Right? I go, dear Lord, you are great and you are awesome and I should really go to the store and that's a project I need to get done. And how am I going to texture the walls downstairs? I got to pay that bill. And Oh, Jesus. Um, so you're cool and awesome. Right? I have to pray out loud. That's just me. So, sometimes I have to write. I've got to write it out. Be consistent. Consistency, number one thing. Time in the Word. Praying. Number one, consistency. Second thing, creativity. I would, I would desire that as a church, our devotional life is consistent and creative. What I mean by that is this. There is a gorgeous woman sitting in the front row. She's my wife, don't worry. Um, visitors were like, whoa. <laughs> when we got engaged, I used every possible means of communication on the planet at that time. It was the 90s, so wasn't as many as today, to communicate with her, right? When, when you were falling in love with your spouse, it was, not, it was not simply like a, well, we set aside our devotional time every day. I spend one hour with her in the morning, and then we're good to go. No, right? Like you did, how many, come on, admit it. How many of you did like, no, you hang up? No, you hang up. Well, you didn't hang up either. And then you'd hang up, and what did you do? Pop the phone up and text. I hung up. <laughs> and then you run to your computer and email her. You run over, make a fire, and smoke signals. <laughs> You're the greatest. <laughs> Come on. There's got to be some creativity to the way we devote ourselves to the Lord. Amen? It's not just about like, well, I have my consistent time, and that's what I do. And check off the box. It's about being creative and falling in love with the presence and the person, the person of Jesus. It's allowing him to be the lover of our souls and the, the point and the focalness of our entire affections. Amen? Use music, use whatever. I, I think part of, and I wanted to touch on this earlier, I forgot to, so we'll just do it now. I shouldn't have admitted that. Um, we talked last week about the importance of, of exalting and magnifying the person nature, and, person, nature, and character of the Father and of Jesus in our worship. Amen? Can I also say it's important for us to pray together in song? And that's part of what worship is as well. Part of the musical portion of our service is us praying together to the Father. Amen? So it's creativity. The third thing is this, it's community. I would want us to have consistency, creativity, and community. This is not something you do solely in isolation. You should be praying with other people. You should be around people. Here's what I mean by that. You should be around people that are willing to shut off the football game and pray for you when you need it. It doesn't always have to be like, hey, would you like to get together on Thursday mornings from 6 o'clock in the morning until 7 and have together have a prayer time? Okay, if, you're, if that's you and you, you're like that organized, go for it. But I love the relationships I have with, for me specifically, with other brothers in the Lord where when we're just driving down the road, I'll never forget the first time. First time we're, we, we, were, we were part of a college group, right? And we're together on a Saturday night and we're playing a card game called Hand and Foot. Anybody else play Hand and Foot? Anybody, anybody? Cool, one of you, awesome. It's a card game and we're playing, two of you, sorry. And uh, somebody in the back was like, I have my hand up. Um, and we're, we're, playing, we're playing this card game. There's about 30, 40, 50 of us in the room. And I'll never forget the night. Saturday night, we've been doing this for a couple, couple weeks and having a blast, just hanging out, a bunch of people who love Jesus and playing cards. 
somebody was just talking and said, hey, I'm really struggling with something. To be honest with you, it was 20 years ago, I don't remember. And I'll never forget the moment we shut that thing down and we said, get in the middle of this room. We're going to lay our hands on you and pray for you. And for the next three hours, we prayed for one another. And that became the norm for us. We'd get together to play hand and foot. And before you knew it, we were laying our hands on each other, praying. There needs to be community prayer. Prayer should not be an afterthought. It should be the lifeblood of a church. If it's how we were born, come on somebody, it's how we will consistently live. Amen? Let's stand to our feet. Holy Spirit, I thank you this morning for the power and the authority of your word. Lord, I thank you that you have called us to be devoted to you, God, that you've called us to a consistent and faithful relationship to you. So God, as we prepare to respond this morning, I pray that this would be a time for us to hear from you, to pour out our hearts to you. God, that this would be a true time of devotion to you. Lord, draw us into your presence. Help us fall more and more in love with who you are. God, I, I, I just pray for those that are here that, that struggle with the Martha thing, the, that struggle with the busyness thing, that struggle with the, the cramped and crowded life, that feel they're being more effective for you when they're ignoring you in their service toward you. Would you lift that burden, Father, and draw them into your presence and draw them into a, a devotional caring, loving relationship with you, Father.